0: Uh, We've been talking about the fact that we live in a world with uh, different kinds of very difficult problems. None of us are exempt from this. Uh, Our lives are largely a process of dealing with, trying to manage, trying to get through and get around and get away from problems. Quite frankly, problems, our problems inevitably lead us to the cross because the cross, understand, is God's ultimate solution to our problems, And so in this final message, I wanted to talk about the story of the cross. Uh, This story is not what you would think. It's not a condemning, predictable, or religious story. It's a story actually full of surprise and kind of counterintuitive endings and outcomes. And uh, quite frankly, it's a story of love, the love of God. But to understand the cross, we kind of have to go way back, back into the Old Testament, if you've ever read the Bible much, you may have noticed that in Israel, in ancient days, there were some really bad things happening to certain animals, uh, animals in the great numbers, in the hundreds, in the thousands. Now, their blood was getting sprinkled on furniture, and their fat was getting burned on an altar, and their meat was being eaten at a temple. And this uh, is all stuff that the people for the ethical treatment of animals would not have approved of. Let's put it that way, and that's mildly speaking. We look at all this, and even as we look back on it, we kind of wonder, what's the deal? I mean, (laughs) what exactly is going on with all of that? And uh, you understand that in the Bible, Moses is the one who gave formal instructions about sacrifices and worship and how they were to be offered and what exactly they meant. But understand, too, that people are actually sacrificing animals way before Moses was ever on the scene. Abraham lived long before Moses, as one example, and he was offering sacrifices. Uh, Cain and Abel, who lived long before Abraham, they, too, were offering sacrifices, In fact, people in other countries practice animal sacrifice as well. And the point is just this, the Bible did not actually come up with the idea of animal sacrifice. Animal sacrifice was nearly a universal practice in the ancient world. And that looks very odd to us, truthfully. We look back on these cultures, kind of scratch our head, what was that about? What were they thinking? What were they doing? We think that maybe we're just uh, a lot smarter than they are. Maybe they're just dumber. Uh, But before we go there, let's unpack this idea of sacrifice just for a bit. Understand that in the ancient world, uh, there was a general belief that we need help. That was the mindset of people living in the ancient world. We need help. Human beings need help. We're not masters of the universe. We do not control our destiny. Now, of course, we are much, much smarter than they are. And so we know now that with technology and science and education and things of that nature, we actually are In control, Uh, we are masters of the universe and we can fix all of our problems, amen. Yeah, Mm -hmm. but in the ancient world, you see, they didn't know that and they thought life was uh, a bit mysterious. Actually, they didn't know that things like meat could be purchased in a cellophane wrapper in a market called Whole Foods. You didn't need to go through all that bloody work, you see. And they looked at things like birth and death, and to them, there was a, a bit of wonder to all of it. It was bloody, yes. It was painful, yes. But it was good, and it could also be bad. Uh, today, we're a bit shielded from all of this kind of thing. We've kind of made our lives that way. When our first child was born, Ian, who was up here, I've told some of you this before, but Holly and I went to Lamaze classes. They still have Lamaze? Oh, okay good. Good to hear. Uh, I'm not sure what good it did. But it was good to hear. So this is a long time ago. This is 34 years ago. Uh, back then when you went to a Lamaze class, they didn't allow you to use the word pain when you talked about the birthing process, uh, especially husbands who were being given the, the task of coaching their wives through this experience. They said, your wife may experience some discomfort, I believe was the term. <laughs> And when Holly went into labor with Ian, that labor lasted 30 plus hours, not making that up. Uh, the worst part of it was that Ian's body in there was kind of twisted around in a certain way. And so Holly's discomfort was pretty, pretty agonizing. Uh, the worst moment came when the doctor actually reached into my wife's body with his hand to try to wrench the baby and turn the baby. That didn't work. So then came forceps, right? It was ranching, uh, kind of ramping up. Now during all of this, there was a look of pain on my wife's face that I had never seen before. And there was tons tons of blood I had never seen this much blood now I'm the coach so I need to do something right so I said to her honey you obviously are experiencing some discomfort now so you should practice breathing the way that we have you know learned at Lama's class and then Holly said some very non-Presbyterian words to me <laughs> that let me know that this was way worse than discomfort right but eventually here's the thing Out of all this very, very difficult, painful experience, lots of pain and lots of blood and lots of discomfort came life. And it's so amazing how you turn almost in an instant from all of that pain and difficulty but to to the celebration of life. Now, in the ancient world, they knew in ways, I think, that we kind of tend to forget that we're born in blood and in pain. We die in blood sometimes and in pain, but there is this mystery about it. There's kind of wonder through it all. And there's certainly a reminder that from the start all the way to the finish, we need help, right? And they notice this strange rhythm in life that life seems to come out of death. Uh, And so every time there's a meal, for example, that nourishes us or sustains us, uh, it's really uh, something that promotes life. Uh, It's ironic, it's mysterious that a plant, when it's harvested, or an animal, when it loses its life and is eaten, uh, out of that, blood has been shed, crops have been harvested, but life has been lost, but yet life is also sustained through those very things. And this cycle is amazing. It's certainly mysterious. It's kind of awful at times, but it's also wonderful. And to the ancients, this is why every meal was actually something they considered to be sacred. This is why sacrifices were part of what enabled meals to take place. Every meal deserved, therefore, the taking of time to thank the gods and to bless the food. There was a certain sacredness to this thing of having the provisions that you needed. Now, this leads to another idea. That's related to sacrificing animals, and and that is this, that in the ancient world, they believed in a spiritual realm. Uh, They believed in a world that was beyond this world. Now, again, they were not smart like us. Uh, They didn't know that the only real world was what you could see and taste and touch and feel and hear. They didn't know that. They thought there was this other realm, a spiritual realm, and sacrifice was an important part of connecting, they thought connecting with that spiritual realm. There's a guy at Yale, his name is Gilders, and he says says that we think of sacrifice as losing something. You know, if we sacrifice a car, or if we sacrifice money, or if we sacrifice a limb, you know, it's gone. We've lost it, right? Uh, In the ancient world, when they thought of sacrifice, though, he says they didn't think of loss. They actually thought of it more as transfer, Uh, To sacrifice something was to transfer it from the everyday human realm into that spiritual realm that I mentioned. And you'll see a phrase in the Bible, you see this phrase a lot in the Old Testament, you see it a little bit in the New. Uh, Sacrifices are described as things like an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Uh, In another place, burnt offering uh, is described as a pleasing aroma, or a fragrant offering in the New Testament. And these expressions describe the idea of a sacrifice being offered here on earth, but having a pleasant effect somewhere else in a spiritual realm. Kind of like when you sacrifice a cow on your grill. You ever done this? I mean, most of us have. There's this wonderful aroma that goes, if you ever, you have a neighbor who's a gifted griller and boy, they throw something on the grill and man, you just start salivating. You wish you could get an invitation to dinner, right? There's this wonderful aroma that goes up and kind of permeates the near neighborhood and the neighborhood gets to enjoy it. The meat is still there on the grill, but the aroma rises up and that aroma was a blessing to anyone who can smell it. It certainly in that day was viewed to be also a blessing, even a feast, even a meal for the gods something the gods would appreciate. And so sacrifice was kind of a transfer. It's human, it's earthly, it's ordinary, but it connects somehow with the spiritual realm. And that's all part of the way they just looked at life. Now, admittedly, there were other aspects of sacrifice in the ancient world that God was going to have to change in order to teach his people, Israel, what he wanted them to know. In the ancient culture in which Israel was formed... ...popular idea that the gods created human beings to make food, to provide food for them, because the gods were hungry. Not making this up. Uh, The gods, too, were thought of as just kind of more powerful versions of us, of the human beings. The gods could be weak, they could be mischievous, they could be petty, they could be jealous, they could be needy, they could be very, very self-centered or self-seeking. I've been reading the Iliad lately, and if you've ever read the Iliad, you know this to be true, they're heroes, very self-centered, very self-seeking, the gods, very fickle, very jealous, and so the people... Uh, the, the gods made people to take care of their needs, to create food for them, to offer them sacrifices, to bring them gifts and to give them worship. And if the people would do this stuff for the gods, people believed that the gods would do stuff for them. It was kind of a quid pro quo type of an arrangement. Another example of this, you know, the gods when visiting earth, normally they lived on Mount Olympus or someplace like that, but if they visited earth, they needed a place to stay and they therefore needed a temple. And so people would build Temples for the gods, the gods were hungry, so people would offer sacrifice. And again, as long as the gods were made happy, then the hope was that people would be happy. And so when God, the one true God, Israel's God, wanted to make a people for himself, he had to teach Israel all kinds of things to kind of reprogram their thinking. And like one of those things is that there are not a bunch of gods out there needing sacrifices to fulfill their needs and so God teaches Israel the truth about himself. That's a lot of what scripture is God interacting with people and teaching them the truth about himself. He changes the whole idea behind this sacrificing of animals. Uh, first, he teaches them that there is only one God and that that God is not weak. He's not mischievous. He's not petty. He's not jealous. He's not selfish. He's, in fact, all loving and supremely good, and righteous, and holy. Now, the problem is, is God would reveal himself that way to his people. Uh, the, the deal is that uh, his people are not that way. I am not that way. You are not that way. I am anything but all of those things. All loving, I wish. Supremely good, eh, good maybe sometimes. Righteous, holy, just ask my wife. Uh, And so you see, sacrifice became for God's people more about personal and national atonement or payment, if you will, for sin uh, than it was about a quid pro quo. If I do something for you, will you do something for me? Other things change as well with this whole thing of sacrifice. Israel, of course, had how many temples? Only one. They were supposed to have only one. Other countries, other cultures worshiped lots of gods, tribal gods, national gods, gods for everything. And so in uh, their cities, there were altars, there were temples all over the place because all of those gods needed places for worship, places to stay if they were on earth. They needed temples, in other words. Um, But in Jerusalem, one temple because there's only one God. And interestingly, Israel understood too that their temple wasn't really where God lived lived. Um, In fact, Solomon, who built their first temple, as you may know, he wrote these words. He said, but will God really dwell on earth? And the answer is no. Yeah, no. Uh, He goes on to say the heavens, even the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Although the temple was large in their day and beautiful in their day, they understood it wasn't really God's Place to live. They understood the temple was there more than anything else to express a spiritual truth. Namely, that God wanted to dwell with them. He wants to dwell with you. He wants to dwell with me. This God, you see, is not a distant God. He doesn't live on Mount Olympus or somewhere. He's He's a present God and He wants relationship with us. In fact, He wants to dwell in our hearts and in our lives. In fact, in the New Testament, we are told that when a person puts their faith in Jesus and believes in him, we actually become the temple. Our bodies become the temple of God, the place where the Holy Spirit resides. And this was an amazing revelation then. It's still an amazing revelation today, if it's true. Now, something else God had to teach his people was that he didn't make us because he needed something. He didn't need food. He didn't need a home. He made us, in fact, to love us. He made us to be someone also to be like him so that we could turn around and love him in return. It would be this reciprocal, loving, caring relationship. In fact, we see this uh, begin to be expressed in places like Psalm 50. God says this, "'I have no need of a bull from your stalls "'or of goats from your pens, "'for every animal of the forest is mine "'and the cattle on a thousand hills.'" I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? And the answer is no, I don't. I don't need to. Now, why does God say this? Why does he reveal this to the writer of the Psalms? It's because in the ancient world, that's what people believed about their gods. The idea that there's one God who has no needs, that had to be taught to the world. And that idea came through Israel and through the scriptures that they have through this thing today we call the Bible. Now, just a little note here. Uh, Lest you think that ancient people are just dumber than us, uh, people, you know, offering their lives and offering sacrifices and so on to idols and so, do not think that those practices ended with the ancient world. We have people worshiping idols. We worship idols all the time, little idols. A woman gets hooked on gambling, and she ends up throwing away and sacrificing everything in her bank account, all her financial well-being, just for one more thrill, one more hope that maybe, just maybe I can hit the big jackpot. A guy goes into the office really early, and he stays there really late, And he spends his life trying to climb that ladder of the the golden ladder of opportunity. And he sacrifices his relationship with his children and his relationship with his wife and his relationship with friends, sacrifices his health, sacrifices his emotional well-being, sacrifices his spiritual vitality all on the altar of a God called success. Athletes injecting their bodies with horrible things, sacrificing themselves to a God called winning or glory, or fame. Young people, uh, people with a fabulous future in front of them, throw it all away for little gods like alcohol or drugs or sex or any number of things. A husband gets up in the middle of the night, goes to a computer, clicks on an adult website, And does this day after day and week after week, sacrificing his self-respect and his integrity in his relationship and his sexual integrity, sacrificing his marriage for a thrill that will never deliver what it's promising. It's never going to satisfy. You see, here's the thing. Offering sacrifices to idols did not end with the ancient world. We all carry little idols around with us, things we think we need to be happy, things we think will satisfy us. And this leads to another idea too that that God teaches through Israel. And this has to do with that thing I mentioned earlier, this thing of holiness. You see, we humans have one great intractable problem, a problem we can't control, we can't manage and we can't fix. And it's not out there somewhere, it's in here. Understand the appeal of the practice of idolatry uh, idolatry is this. It says, my problem is out there. It's not in here. You see, my problem is I I just need more money or I just need more success. I just need better health or better crops or more power or what have you. And so I try to manipulate the powers, whatever I perceive those powers to be. I manipulate those powers to get me what I want. That's the way idolatry works, you see. If I serve this little God, hopefully it will give me what I think I need. Now, God says there is a problem, but the problem is not out there. Something is wrong, not just with the world, Something is actually wrong with me. And this too is gonna have to be taught to the human race. The psalmist who is realizing this as God revealed himself to the psalmist says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. Well, this is unheard of for a God to say something like this. And this this is a fundamental difference, you understand, between this God, the God of Israel and the gods that most of the ancient world related to. You see, the gods, people thought, just wanted sacrifice. They didn't care much at all about ethical behavior, uh, treating others justly or fairly. That, That was not what the gods were about. They just want me to give them stuff, stuff they need, stuff they want. And the psalmist says, no, that's not really the way it is. God, you don't delight in sacrifice or I'd bring it. That would be easy if that's all I had to do. You don't take pleasure in a burnt offering. I could do that, I could do that so easily. And then he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. It's a change of heart he's talking about. He says, that broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. And who wants to hear that? I mean, who wants to do that? You know, we resist that message. That message is Offensive because it's telling me something needs to change in me. Something is broken in me, and that doesn't feel good to hear that message. The editors of the London Times about 100 years ago uh, asked a few great writers uh, if they would write an essay that they would then publish in the newspaper, and they wanted them to write an essay about this question, what's wrong with the world? Good question, interesting question. See what people would write about it and what they would say. It's a question that actually human beings, if they have any integrity, cannot uh, deny, <laughs> cannot ignore. In the ancient world where Israel lived, what's wrong was the gods were needy, the gods were angry, the gods weren't cooperating. That's what was wrong. And so we needed to give them something to make them happy so that they, in turn, would give us what we need to be happy. Point is, what's wrong with the world, you see, is out there, not in here. But God taught Israel something fundamentally different. Uh, the great writer G.K. Chesterton, if you've ever read any of his books, the guy is absolutely brilliant beyond belief and very, very witty, very clever guy. Uh, He wrote a five word essay answering that question what's wrong with the world? This is what he said. He wrote back and he said, Dear sirs, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. Very clever, very honest, and very true. In other words, you know, I am broken. If we're going to tell the truth, I am broken. If we're going to tell the truth, I am flawed. If we're going to tell the truth, I have to admit, I am selfish. I am greedy. I am hurtful. I can be hateful. I am apathetic. It's something in me the Bible identifies and calls sin. And at its most basic level, too, sin is when I take something that is not worthy, a little g, you know, a little g God, something that is not worthy, something that cannot save, and I give it my ultimate Allegiance. I give it my time. I give it my treasure. I give it my uh, my attention. And you see, I sacrifice my life for what is not worthy of my life. Sin allows me to betray my values, to worship myself, to ignore others, and that's what's wrong with the world. It's me. And when this little community of Israel absorbed all of this, uh, here's what they said. summarize summarized the whole Old Testament. Pretty much they said, wow, I have a problem. I need help. And they found that help in their God, oddly enough. This God who was holy and righteous and just and merciful and loving and forgiving, turns out he actually had a plan to do away with sin, to punish sin, to eradicate sin even the sin in us. He has a plan to remake us, to transform us, to be who we're supposed to be. And to do all of this, to accomplish all of this, he sent his son, Jesus. And Jesus came as a prophet, speaking the truth of God. Here's the truth about you. Here's the truth about God. He's not who you think he is. He's so much better. He came as a priest offering sacrifice, one sacrifice once and for all. And he also came as a king bringing a kingdom and inviting us to be kingdom citizens. In Mark chapter one, verse 14 and 15, Jesus, uh, we read this, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming. That's what a prophet does. The good news of God, that's what a priest did, provide good news through the sacrifice. Jesus said, the time has come. In other words, waiting is it over. It's here now because I'm here, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe, embrace, take hold of the good news, he said. And that language right there, kingdom of God, means that the possibility of living life with God, together with God has come. That's a real possibility. You see, our sins paid for by Jesus on the cross, being adopted into God's family, being loved by God, living life in the presence of God, living life with the power of God, knowing God's favor here on earth. That's what the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus is all about here and now. You see, in Jesus, there's this great transfer and it's so different than all the other sacrificial transfers that you know, we, we read about and know about from uh, other peoples, other cultures, trying to placate gods, trying to transfer something from earth up there to get something back. You see, this great transfer begins, and not because we take stuff from down here up there, but because in Jesus, God came from up there down here. Totally, totally unexpected. I mean, imagine that, this prophet, Speaking truth, this priest offering sacrifice, this king bringing a a kingdom comes to earth to, to deliver the truth and to offer sacrifice and to set up a kingdom nobody expected. This king says, now this is available to you. One way of thinking about the kingdom of God is simply that wherever God's will is being done, there's a little bit of the kingdom of Jesus. And that starts with me, that starts in my life, in my body, in my work, in my relationships, in what I do. But there's a huge problem here. You probably see it or feel it. You know, there are a lot of other kingdoms in the world. There are a lot of other wills to be done in the world. And all of these kingdoms and all of these wills are opposed to the will of God. And believe me, Jesus met those wills, those kingdoms. The religious leaders of his day, a guy named Herod, a guy named Pilate, a guy named Judas. And then there's you and me. We have kingdoms. We have wills. We all have this problem. We want our will to be done. We want our kingdom to come here on earth. And there is a very real spiritual battle that rages always has. You see, there's God's kingdom and there's God's will, and then there's every other kingdom and every other will on the planet. Now, with human kingdoms and human wills, when our kingdoms are in conflict, well, we seek to overcome with opposition and with force. I will overpower you. I will beat you. I will destroy you. I will break you. That's how I will get my will to be done. But Jesus would not do that. You'd kind of think he would, wouldn't you? God come to earth, that he'd just power up but he wouldn't do that. Jesus' kingdom is so different. You know, there's always been this battle between good and evil. Jesus' kingdom, you see, means to conquer our hearts. That's what he wants to do. And you can't win somebody's heart by just overpowering them. And so Jesus says, my kingdom has come and my will will be done. But he says, I am going to win the battle and I am going to do it by loving you. I am going to win your heart with mercy and with grace and with love. And that's why he said and did things that were so unusual. He said, you hit me in the face, and instead of hitting you back, instead of hurting you, I will turn the other cheek, and I will keep loving you. He said, you asked for the shirt off my back, and I'm going to offer you my cloak as well. Would that be helpful to you? He said, you force me to go one mile and I'll ask you, would it be helpful if I went another? He said stupid things like love your enemies and bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. But he didn't just say it, he did it. And do you understand that these weren't just pious religious rules that Jesus spouted out? This was actually Jesus' battle plan. For the coming of his kingdom. He said, I'm going to take all of that evil and hate and sin that's in the world and I am going to destroy it. And I will show you that those things cannot even begin to overpower my love, my grace, and my forgiveness. And you understand, this put him on a collision course with all those kingdoms and all those powers and all those wills on earth, including mine and yours. You see, he knew that that was gonna happen and that's what led him directly to the cross. Jesus' whole battle plan to defeat evil is so completely upside down and inside out. Who would have thought that a baby being born in a manger, in poverty, in obscurity, in this quiet little country of a little backwater nation would somehow show us God, God with us. Who would have thought that on a cross we would see displayed that ancient battle that has always raged between good and evil, displayed on a cross, love in the face of hate, good in the face of evil? Nobody, absolutely nobody, could have dreamed such a thing, that God would deal with evil and violence and hate and sin and death And all the brokenness in me by subjecting himself to it on the cross. By becoming a sacrifice for us. And saying, whatever you do, it will not make me stop loving you. Nobody dreamed that. Nobody saw that coming. This so is how the apostle Paul described it. He said, he, Jesus, forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. You know, there's a, that law thing that was delivered through Moses. It condemns me because every single one of the 10, every single one of them I've broken and I've broken so many times in heart, in mind, in action or through the things that I don't do. But Jesus took all of that, Paul says. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them. All of those powers, all of those authorities that demand my allegiance, that condemn me. He made a spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross, he said. You see, on the cross, God turns everything upside down and inside out. On the cross, uh, that's where the powers and the authorities, people like Rome, right? The religious leaders of Jesus' day, right? Everybody opposed to Jesus, even the evil one, they all thought, they were all absolutely certain, we got him, we've defeated him, he's dead, he's on the cross. That's where they thought that they were making a public spectacle. Of Jesus. Look how weak he is. Look how pathetic this is. That's where they believe they were triumphing over Jesus on the cross. You see, the cross is where Rome would put failed wannabe Messiah's right to die so that they would make the message very clear to everyone. He loses, we win, right? But Paul says, ironically, what's going on is the cross is where Jesus triumphed. He triumphed by saying, go ahead, do your absolute worst to me. Mock me, abuse me, kill me. You cannot keep me from loving you. That was Jesus' battle plan, to save you and me. Instead of coming in power and just blowing everyone away, which he could so easily have done, he goes to a cross And he loves people. By offering himself a sacrifice. He didn't say, you owe sacrifices to me. I want stuff from you. Instead, he said, I've come to seek and to save the lost. When he died on the cross, he was defeating your sin and your guilt and your death and your racism and your neglect and your injustice and your violence, all the evil powers of this world defeated by Jesus. Those things in you and those things in me. At the cross, all my problems, all of the world's problems actually ultimately do find a solution. We've been saying that life plus people, you know, equals problems. And we've been talking about things like divorce and loneliness and the broken in us. I mean, that's just the truth. Life plus people does equal problems. That's what life in the fallen world looks like. But Jesus is fixing this fallen world, you see. And so we must also say that Jesus plus the cross equals life, real life, abundant life. That's the other equation. That's what gives us hope. And so I just want to ask you, Do you know yet that you need help? And if so, have you come to the cross? Have you put your faith in him? You know, we worship a God who came in a manger. How silly is that? We rejoice in a God who, when he was put in a tomb, came out of the tomb But I got to tell you, we meet God. We meet him at the cross. That's where you meet him. And the main reason that we exist as a church is to help people, all people, meet God at the cross. And I just wonder, have you done that? Do you know you've done that? And I want to invite you to do that today if you never have. It's a really simple thing. People do this all the time. I did it As a high school student about to graduate, reading the Gospel of John, I couldn't believe what Jesus had done for me. And I put my faith in him. And I'll be honest with you, my life hasn't been easy. It hasn't been all good, but it sure hasn't been the same. It's so much different because of being connected to him. I talked to a lady uh, just last week after the first service came up to me. Her name is Kathy, and she said she'd been coming to Deer Creek here for some months now, and, and she was actually moving to Oklahoma, but she wanted to say goodbye. And she just shared with me, uh, she said she wanted me to know this before she left. She said she'd been coming to Deer Creek for some months, and she had put her faith in Jesus. She had trusted him. And I told her, you know, he's got a purpose, and you move into Oklahoma. Deer Creek is not, you know, the only good church in the world. It's the best church, but it's not the the only good church in the world. I said, if he's sending you to Oklahoma, he's got a place for you to serve and work and to be loved and to love others. He's good like that. And that really blessed me. I thanked her for sharing that. But here's the deal. We've all messed up. Not a one of us are what we should be. I mean, I know this and feel this all the time. I'm not the husband I should be. I'm not the dad that I should be. Not the grandparent that I should be. Not the pastor that I should be. What am I going to do with all that guilt and all that shame? Because that is the truth about me. What am I going to do with that? Well, I come to the cross with it. That's all I can do. The cross is all about what Jesus did for me, me, not about what I do for him. And so I come to Jesus saying, God, I come to you because you call me, because you love me, because your love is stronger than hate, and your goodness is stronger than evil, and your forgiveness is greater than my guilt and my shame. And I know this is true because I see it on the cross. I see it there. And so, God, here I am. I offer my life as a living sacrifice to you. Where else can I turn? What else can I do? And I want to give you the chance, if you haven't done that, to do that this morning. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes.